Who's the most fascinating, uh, most extraordinary person you've ever met? Uh, maybe when you think about it, maybe for you, uh, it was a Major League Baseball player you bumped into or an NBA basketball player, uh, maybe a certain artist or musician, uh, somebody in government, uh, maybe you even had the chance to meet the President of the United States. Or maybe when you think about your life, you think to yourself, you know what, my life's pretty boring. I've, I've never really met anyone like that, except well, I did run into Cameron Sprinkle at Dunkin' Donuts one time. I'll tell you, I'll never forget the time that I met Muhammad Ali, the champ. Um, he's the one right here on your right. My wife and I were living in St. Joseph, Michigan at the time, and uh, Muhammad Ali lived just a few miles away in Berrien Springs. And it just seemed like with everyone that we met in St. Joe, everyone had a story about meeting Muhammad Ali. And maybe they bumped into him at the movie theater or uh, they'd see him in a restaurant or maybe at the beach or something. And so it was just my hope uh, somewhere along the way that I'd get the chance to meet Muhammad Ali too. Well, come to find out, uh, a good friend of mine uh, had a relationship with his family. And uh, one day he surprised me and was able to arrange uh, for a group of us uh, to go out to Muhammad Ali's property. And so we went out one afternoon and for about an hour, uh, we just got to spend time with him and in his office. And um, I gotta tell you, I was just in awe. Uh, looking around the office and seeing the Olympic torch that he carried, um, all of the pictures of the different men and women that he had spent time with, people from all around the world that had been in that very office uh, with him. And uh, it was just so cool to sit there on that day and talk to him and listen to him and think to myself, you know, here's a man that at one time was known as uh, one of the most famous athletes in the entire world. You know, when you meet somebody extraordinary like that, um, it kind of sticks with you. Um, you can't get past it. You can't stop talking about it. Uh, well, today, uh, what we want to do is we want to take a look at the life of one man who was more than ordinary. Um, in fact, he's more than extraordinary, too. And I'm just real excited as we spend some more time looking real closely at the life of a man named Jesus. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Genesis Church again. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus of Genesis Church. And can I just say, I love Sundays. I love coming together on Sunday morning, and it feels early when the alarm clock goes off, and it's raining out this morning, but we get here, and isn't it awesome just to come together as the body of Christ and uh, celebrate our Lord and King and to be with our family? Uh, I just absolutely love it. Love being here with you guys. Well, I hope uh, you had a chance this, this week to read chapter 24 in the story. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, Genesis Church is reading through the entire Bible in 2013. And I just want to tell you, if that's you, if you're new this morning, we're using a book called The Story, and we would like to give you one of those for free after this service. If you don't have a copy of The Story, go out to our info hub and let them know uh, that I said you could have one for free. Actually, it has nothing to do with me. They would give you one anyway. But... Uh, Last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the life of Christ as we've moved into the New Testament. Uh, we've talked about his birth and the beginning of his ministry and the fact that there has never been, nor will there ever be, anyone uh, like Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He was present at creation. He was born of a virgin. And we discovered a couple of weeks ago that he fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He spoke amazing words. He walked on water and he performed incredible miracles and he embodied what it means to love God and to love people. And the greatest expression of that love was found in his death on the cross, a death for your sins and for mine. 
and his, his resurrection from the grave in which we find hope and we find new life and we find freedom. And this morning, I hope you'll allow me just to tell you more about this extraordinary man because uh, I believe if you meet him and if you get to know him, that he won't just change your life for a few days like Paul talked about when we meet someone, you know, extraordinary here on planet Earth, but that he can change your life forever and you'll never be the same again. And for those of you who are new to Christianity or maybe who are exploring what faith in Jesus looks like, I hope this morning that I can just simply further acquaint you with this extraordinary person, Jesus Christ, uh, this Jesus who is anything but ordinary. And I think it starts with this. If you're taking notes, there's a section in your program uh, that Jesus, he was an extraordinary teacher. His, teacher, his teaching was so different than anything that people had ever heard before. He was informative. He was challenging. He used humor and poetry and illustrations as he taught. And he used God's word from the Old Testament, and he interpreted it in ways that the people had never heard. And because of that, the crowds would flock to him. They knew this was no ordinary teacher. Well, you might have read in the story this past week, his best-known teaching. Uh, Jesus gives this teaching on a mountain, and so we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Pretty great name, huh? It's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where we find Jesus uh, is teaching along a mountainside right there by the Sea of Galilee, and there are thousands of people who have come to listen to this extraordinary teacher. And although he didn't have a microphone, they could hear every word that he said. It was a natural amphitheater of sorts, and it makes sense because who would know the acoustics of that place better than the one who created it? Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest section of Jesus' teaching that was written down and recorded for us. Mark Moore, who has written several different books on the life and the teachings of Jesus, uh, he describes the Sermon on, on the Mount in this way. He says, in it, we have the epitome of Jesus' teaching. It's radical, sensible, spiritual, and almost vicious in its demolition of hypocrisy. And if you read Matthew 5 through 7 this past week, you know that that's a pretty good description. And you may have also felt at, at times that some of the things that Jesus taught, they come across almost upside down or backwards. Did you pick up on that? As Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted. I mean, do those things sound like blessings to you? At first hearing, it's easy to think that no teacher in their right mind would suggest these things. And why would Jesus teach that? Well, it's because Jesus looked at things very differently than we do. And where we have a tendency just to focus right uh, at the situation in front of us, right at the, the moment at hand, Jesus' teaching is always pulling our, our focus upward and forward. And he's always pulling us towards uh, something that's coming, something that's coming in the future, the peace that would be giving, the hope that would be made available, access to the Father through Jesus' own sacrifice and eternal reward in heaven with the Father. You know, oftentimes Jesus would teach these things using parables, and a parable is just simply uh, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay? An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He would share one of these parables, and he would explain it, and then he would challenge those who heard it to go and to live differently because of what they'd heard. And think of some of the popular examples of this. I'm, I'm guessing that most of you have probably heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the Prodigal Son. These are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, and they captured the hearts of everyone who heard them. I want you to hear what the people thought of these, these parables, these stories, and of Jesus' teaching. 
Mark 1.27 says this. It says, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. The people were amazed. Now get this. That word amazed is used 30 times in, in the Gospels. And three times it's used by Jesus to describe his amazement over something. But the other 27 times it's used to express the amazement that people uh, felt and, ex- and experienced in watching and interacting with Jesus. They were amazed at his miracles. They were amazed at the way that he responded to people and the way he loved people. They were amazed at his teaching. Why? Well, because Jesus was the most extraordinary teacher who ever lived. People could listen to him for hours. They would walk for miles just to hear him. They would go without food or water to take in what he had to say. And they were so attracted to him. And there was good reason for this. In Scripture, we often hear uh, Jesus referred to as rabbi. And that word rabbi just simply means teacher, or more specifically, a teacher of the Jewish law. And in Jesus' day, every rabbi would have his own interpretation or understanding of the Old Testament law. And that rabbi would then seek to promote his beliefs among his followers so that they would then embrace it and then go and teach others. And the rabbi's interpretation of the law was called his yoke. Okay, And so when you followed a certain rabbi, you were placing yourself under that teacher's yoke. So when you hear that word yoke, I want you to think about that rabbi's teaching or his platform or his philosophy. It was their interpretation of the law, and it's what they wanted others to embrace. Take the Sabbath, for instance. We know uh, that the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest, right? No work. Well, what would happen is that each rabbi would then come up with their own lists of what was and wasn't work on the Sabbath. And every rabbi had a different interpretation. So one rabbi might say that that on the Sabbath, um, you could walk inside of your house, but you couldn't walk to the store to buy some bread because that would be work. You walk too far and that became work. Uh, Another rabbi would say, well, you can walk to the store to get some bread, but no further because then that would be work. And every rabbi had their own limits, even when talking about physical intimacy. Some would say, you know what, you can't do that on the Sabbath because that's work. And others would say, hey, it's worship, you know, do it two or three times in a day. (laughs) And I know that some of you men are wanting me to take a very uh, hard stance on this teaching, but I'm just going to leave it alone this morning. (laughs) You're welcome, wives. I wonder if any of you have ever traveled um, to Israel or if you've ever been in a place with a large Jewish population. Uh, If so, you may have been in a building that had Sabbath elevators. Anyone ever seen a Sabbath elevator before? Anyone experienced that? So so the idea is that to push a button on the Sabbath, uh, to push an elevator button on the Sabbath, that that would be work. And so uh, these Sabbath elevators are programmed to stop on every single floor on the Sabbath so that you can get where you need to go without working. And I'm guessing it would be a little bit like this next picture I'm going to show you. It's Buddy the Elf, uh, you know, making a Christmas tree out of the elevator buttons, and that that baby's going to stop on every single floor. But these, these Sabbath elevators, they stem from the yoke of some rabbi who said, you know, it's work to push an elevator button on the Sabbath. That was his interpretation of the law. That was his yoke. So when Jesus comes on the scene... Uh, he makes this very interesting invitation. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And listen to this last line. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus, the rabbi, comes on the scene and he says, hey, I'm different than all the others because all of the others have this yoke that's just a list of rules. Do this. Don't do that. You walk too far. You pushed that button. But my yoke is about rest for your souls. My yoke is about, you know, not increasing your burden, but actually finding peace and rest. And the people realized that this was no ordinary teacher. teacher. His words were radical, and the people were amazed, and they were drawn to him. But Jesus wasn't only an extraordinary teacher. He was more than that. Jesus was also an extraordinary king. In the New Testament, it was the wise men who first called Jesus king, and they did it while he was still a baby. In Matthew chapter 2, they asked the question, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And they came to worship him. Now think about that beginning of being called a king in infancy and fast forward to Jesus' death on the cross and what was it that they placed above his head? What did the sign say? It said, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And they meant it sarcastically, but it was the truth. And they mocked Jesus with that title because when you think about kings and kingdoms, you probably think about words like power and authority and supremacy. And Jesus certainly encapsulated all of those things, but not in the way that you and I tend to think about them. You know, we think about those things in physical, earthly terms, but Jesus' kingdom isn't an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual, heavenly kingdom. And throughout his ministry, we see Jesus establishing his kingdom in a way that no other king would. He accepted outsiders. He embraced the sick and the weak and the broken. No other king would do that, but Jesus did. And when kings talk, they speak of their strength. They call attention to their power. But Jesus hung out not with the powerful, you know, not with the popular, but with the least of society because he was no ordinary king and his was no ordinary kingdom. In Luke 4, 18 through 19, reading from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus makes this statement after he's read from the book of Isaiah. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And this long-awaited king had finally come to establish his kingdom. But Jesus was a king on a spiritual mission. He had come to set the spiritually captive free. And this freedom was available to the poor and to the weak and to the sinners. And it was even available to the Gentiles, those who weren't of Jewish descent. He was a king on a spiritual mission, and that mission would cost him everything. The late Chuck Colson pointed out that there have been hundreds of presidents and kings, and in times of war, they have always done the same thing. That is, they've asked their subjects to go out and to lay down their lives for them. But there is only one king who went out and laid down his own life for his subjects. It was King Jesus, this king who taught about freedom and then paid the ultimate price by laying down his life so that you and I could be free, so that everyone who would believe in and confess him as Lord would, would find freedom. And Jesus Christ was an extraordinary teacher, and he was an extraordinary king. And finally, Jesus was an extraordinary man. 
The scriptures tell us that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Not, you know, 50% God and 50% man, like he was just half and half. No, he was 100% divine and yet 100% human. Bruce Ware uh, said it this way in explaining Jesus' deity and humanity. He says, his deity was unexpressed so that his humanity could be fully expressed. And Philippians chapter 2 says it like this, starting in verse 6, that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And do you hear the fullness of both Jesus' divinity and humanity in those verses? He was fully God and yet fully man. And let's just consider the significance of Jesus' humanity for a moment. When God ordained that his son, Jesus Christ, would enter the world through a human birth. And the Bible tells us that he experienced thirst and hunger. He experienced joy and sorrow. He experienced exhaustion and he slept When he was cut, he bled, and when the time came, he died. And he experienced all of these things because he was fully human. He was God in the flesh. Sometimes I I think we wrongly uh, think about Jesus as some kind of robotic deity, like his humanity was only skin deep. And we tell ourselves, well, that's why he never sinned. I mean, he was God in the flesh. He couldn't sin. He was incapable of it. What's the big deal? Well, it's because Jesus was fully human. And you and I know what it means to be fully human, right? When we read what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wouldn't have been wrestling with whether or not to face this cruel death if it was just programmed into him. And he certainly wouldn't have been in such anguish that as the Bible tells us that he sweat like drops of blood as he cried out to his father and he said, if there's any other way, if there's any possible way, take this cup from me. You know, he's thinking towards the the agony and the punishment that's about to be put on him. But then he says, but Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was no robotic deity. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 paints a very different picture. It says, for we do not have a high priest. It's speaking of Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, Yet he did not sin. Folks, Jesus came to show us what would happen if a person walked so completely in tune with the Holy Spirit and in complete obedience to the Father. And to do that, he would regularly pull away from everyone else so that he could hear his Father's voice. And we may think that, that Jesus would have been the last person you know, who needed these intimate times with God because he, he was God. Well, yes, but he came in human form, and in his humanity, he needed and he hungered for that connection with his Father. And he he set an example of what your prayer time and mine is supposed to look like and, and why it's so important. We've got to communicate with the Father. We've got to hear from him. We've got to learn to rely on his Spirit in our days. And just, just as Jesus did, you know, to, to make that a priority, to find those times to, to make that a priority Well, what about Jesus' divinity? How how did that play out? Let's think about some of the statements that Jesus made. He said, if any man has seen me, he's seen the Father. No no ordinary man could claim that. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, present at creation. He says, destroy this temple 
speaking of his body, destroy it and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he followed these statements up with some pretty amazing miracles. I mean, the Bible tells us 34 specific miracles that Jesus performed. And there's 15 other occasions in the Gospels where it just talks in general about all of the miracles uh, that Jesus performed. He's not like anyone else who ever lived. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Can we agree that that's not normal? He told the wind and the waves what to do, and they did it. That's not ordinary. There's something different about this Jesus. There's something unique. There's something divine within his humanity. He was 100% God and 100% man. And if you're saying right now, yeah, but that math doesn't add up. I just want to tell you this morning that with Jesus, a lot of times the math doesn't add up. And that's a good thing. I want to conclude this morning by telling you about one of Jesus' miracles where the math didn't add up. And it's recorded in all four Gospels. We're going to look uh, at Matthew's account of this miracle in Matthew chapter 14. It's often referred to as the feeding of the 5,000, but it's worth noting that most scholars believe that there was way more than 5,000 people uh, in attendance that day. In this culture, it was the norm only to count the men who would have been present. And so it's believed that there could have easily been 15,000 people present that day. And they all came because they believed that Jesus had something that they needed. I read uh, something another pastor wrote about this parable. He said, The crowd was a multitude of misery and sickness, bringing nothing but requests. And what did Jesus do? He treated every one of them with kindness. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Jesus had compassion on them. But here's the thing. The disciples, Jesus' disciples, they didn't share his compassion over this crowd. I mean, it's been a long day. They're tired. It's apparent that they haven't had much to eat. And Matthew 14, 15 tells us that as evening approached, the disciples, they came to Jesus and they said, this is a remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, Typically, when we find the disciples interacting with Jesus in the scriptures, they address him first with a very respectful term of Lord, Lord. You've probably read that if you've read in the Gospels. They'll come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, and then they'll present something to him. Uh, they skip that here. It's almost as though uh, they're just coming to Jesus with a demand. They're coming to Jesus to tell him, listen, we've got all these people. We've got nothing to feed them. Send them away. Get them out of here, Jesus. But Jesus isn't put off by their disrespect, and he's not put off by their lack of compassion for these people. He simply gives them an assignment. And he says in verse 16, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I love that. He puts it right back in their lap. And the disciples, you know, they quickly do some checking within the crowd, but no one had intended to stay so long or thought to pack a lunch. You know, this teacher, he had captured their attention, and instead of leaving to get something to eat, they chose to, to stay and to miss a meal instead. In fact, most scholars would suggest that they had missed two meals. So what happens? The disciples, they come back to Jesus with their report. Look at verse 17. It says, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. So they've searched the crowd, and they've come up with maybe one person who thought ahead. And they point out, you know, the fact that what they have is measly by using the, the word only. You know, we only have this much, as if to say, Jesus, this is impossible. So here's the situation. Potentially 15,000 hungry people, 
and one sack lunch. And just to give you some perspective, I want to show you a picture of what the lawn at Klipsch um, Music Center uh, looks like. And the, and the lawn at the Klipsch Music Center, it holds around 18,000 people. And so this maybe gives us some perspective, give or take a few thousand people, uh, of what the crowd looked like that Jesus uh, would have been addressing that day. And how many people in this crowd uh, do you think, you know, this one sack lunch is going gonna, is gonna to satisfy? It's ridiculous to even think about unless you're the disciple Philip. Now, Philip was an accountant, okay? He loved the math. And when John's gospel, Philip says, hey, it would take over six months' wages for everyone just to have one bite. And there's always that guy in the group, isn't there? There's always that guy who likes to throw out the random statistics. And if that's you, we love you. And uh, you would get along so well with Philip because the math, it's not even really worth exploring unless you leave room in your equation for Jesus. You see, the disciples, they did what we often do. We look at our situation and we search and we rack our brains and we do the math and we say, you know what, it's impossible. It's, it's too difficult. My circumstances are too complicated. It's not going to add up. And here's what we do. We look at our circumstances as extraordinary and we look at our God as ordinary. Did you catch that? We look at our circumstances as if they're extraordinary and our God as if he's just ordinary. That's what we're doing when we approach life with this hopeless, impossible outlook. Now hear me on this. I'm not trying to diminish what you might be going through. Okay, I'm not trying to lessen what you might be up against right now. But I do want you to know that with Jesus, the math is different. Because with Jesus, it's always plus one. It's not just five loaves plus two fish. It's five loaves plus two fish plus one extraordinary God. And as I read this story, I just wonder if Jesus was longing, you know, and almost begging for them to count plus one. Count plus one. Because if you've got Jesus, it really doesn't matter what the other numbers add up to. Think about this. If you've got a marriage that is failing right now and you've done everything you can think to do, Maybe you've given up because you think the circumstances are too great. Can I just ask, are you factoring in the plus one? Because a, a marriage plus Jesus, well, that changes everything. And maybe you're in a terrible financial storm right now. You've done the math. You've looked at the budget and the numbers. They don't add up. Can I ask you, are you factoring in the plus one? Because again, Jesus, uh, he changes things. If you've got a frightening health situation that you're up against, and, and you've tried everything. Have you factored in Jesus yet? Are you counting plus one? You know, maybe you've been looking at your past, and there's some things that, that you're just having a really hard time getting over and understanding that, that you could have new life, and you get a, a, a free chance to start again. You're having a hard time embracing that. Have you factored in Jesus yet? Are you counting plus one? Now, I'm not suggesting a health and wealth gospel here. Okay, but I am suggesting that we serve a God uh, with whom nothing is impossible. And when the odds are overwhelmingly stacked against you, like five loaves and two fish and 15,000 people, I believe Jesus is just begging for us to change our count, to count plus one, to trust that, that he can do all things. You know, the disciples, they couldn't see past five plus two, and they stopped at seven, and they threw their hands in the air. And all the while... The answer to their problem was standing right next to them. Look at verse 18. It says, bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. 
Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. And I would just say to you today that when life is tough, when the odds are against you and you feel like there is no way, I would challenge you to reconsider your math. I would challenge you, you know, have you factored in Jesus? Are you counting plus one and allowing him room to do what he can only do? Because this is no ordinary teacher. This is no ordinary king. And this is no ordinary man. This is the Messiah, the Son of God.